On this podcast, we go one step beyond publications and guidelines to speak directly with leading experts in interventional pulmonology. This podcast will address not only fundamental topics and exciting publications, but also unconventional topics for which the evidence base isn't that robust. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the speaker and not necessarily endorsed by the AABIP. This is your host, Odit Chadda, an assistant professor at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. And with that, let's dive into the next episode. Complex benign tracheal stenosis and recurrent simple benign tracheal stenosis are best treated surgically with tracheal dissection. However, if patients are in respiratory distress, endoscopic treatment is often the first line. Endoscopic treatment should also be considered in severe stenosis to facilitate endotracheal intubation for the following surgery or in patients who are not surgical candidates due to a long length of involved trachea a systemic inflammatory etiology to the tracheal stenosis, or other medical comorbidities that would otherwise contraindicate this major surgery. Endoscopic treatment, to clarify, involves dilation and silicone stenting. Our topic for discussion today is transcaudal silicone stenting for laryngotracheal stenosis. My guest today is someone who requires no introduction. Dr. Herbe Duto is the head of the thoracic endoscopy unit within the Department of Thoracic Oncology, Diseases of the Pleura, and Interventional Pulmonology at North Hospital in Marseille, France. He is also the former president of the EABIP. Dr. Dutau, thank you for joining me today on this podcast. Uh, Thanks to you. Before we get started, do you have any conflicts of interest to disclose that are relevant to today's discussion? Yes, I do. I do. Because I am consultant for uh, Novatech. Novatech company. Novatech is a company which is uh, located close to Marseille uh, and which, which is producing silicon stents, also metallic stents, and, and the new rigid bronchoscope uh, with my name on my behalf. Hmm. So wow. I have this conflict, but, but I, would say, I would say that this is a historical conflict that we have in, in Marseille because Maybe you know that uh, the commercial era of airway stenting started in Marseille, mm-hmm. thanks to Dr. Dumont. 1987. So, uh, uh, 1987, yeah, first, first and placed. And uh, since that, that time, we, we have always been collaborating with this company because it's a historical one. Uh, of course, on the products and mainly to try to, 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 to improve the products. So... Yes, there is a conflict of interest, but um, but um, but that is <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So traditionally, we have tried to stay away from placing stents that extend into the subglottis. So, Doctor Dutta, what are some of the concerns with placing a stent uh, that extends into the subglottis, especially the stents that encroach upon the vocal cords? Well, first of all, yes, it's true that. Um, Subglottic area is is particularly um, tricky area. Uh, we used to say that if you want to place a stent in the trachea, you have to keep a safety margin uh, between the proximal part of the stent and the vocal cords of 10 millimeter, no less than 10 millimeter. Otherwise, you can have a, a drop point, a kind of conflict of interest between the, the stent and the vocal cord, I mean the sub, subglottic area, the larynx, and that can create a, a laryngeal edema and potentially respiratory distress. So the, the safety margin is very important because 
even in my experience, I, I still have a tough case that I still remember with a stand very close to the vocal cord, which was placed when years ago, but I still have it in my mind. And uh, during the night, he was staying in that, at the hospital. He experimented this respiratory distress. And the ICU guys came and uh, could not intubate him because mm. of the edema and the presence of the stand just below. So they could not pass it. And unfortunately, the patient died. And so that that, that happened. I have this case, only one, one case in my, in my mind, but one case is too much. It's too <laughs> much. So, so this, uh, this safety margin is very important, very important. So what has been the uh, traditional surgical approach to manage such patients? Well, uh, clearly, uh, uh, surgery, that means liver resection, is a gold standard to treat, uh, to treat trache subglottic tracheostomosis. This is a gold standard because, because you can fix it. Liver resection means that you can remove no more than five rings of, uh, or five centimeters of trachea mm -hmm. and realize end-to-end -end anastomosis. So this is clearly the best option for operable patients. So that means generally no comorbidities that could preclude uh, surgery or more, more often anesthetic, general anesthesia. So this is a gold standard. And as you said in your introduction, uh, endoscopy, endoscopy has a role to play before surgery because at least 50% of patients arrive in emergency. So, I mean, with distress, respiratory distress, because only two, two, three millimeters of uh, lumen remains. So you have to at least realize the first dilation. And you mm -hmm. mentioned the first dilation mm -hmm. to, to allow surgery to be done in better conditions, so intubation also. So uh, endoscopy is important. Uh, and in some cases of inoperable patients, uh, then, so, then endoscopy with stent placement is a palliative treatment. That means that you palliate the absence of uh, you know, more, more definitive options. But in the literature, we, have, we, we found that uh, if a stent in, is let in place for close to 18 months, then you have a 70% of chance to, to have no recurrence after stent removal. So, mm -hmm. it's, so that means it's palliative, but can be curative also. Uh, 70%. Mm -hmm. Of course, the problem of stenting is that it requires management. Uh, uh, so that means nebulization of the line three mm -hmm. times a day to prevent the mucus plug. And of course, you expose the patient to stent-related complications. So that means that surgery is better. Uh, as I said, surgery is normal surgery is okay for five centimeters, five rings, I would say. But above Above that, this length, uh, you cannot achieve this kind of uh, surgery, and and you need replacement with something, something else. So tracheal replacement. But this is another topic, which is very interesting, and, and I would say particularly in France, where we have centers in Paris, who have two different techniques: one with aortic replacement, aortic graft mm -hmm. replacement, and other with neotrachea that. Uh, they build with uh, autologous uh, cartilage and skin and all these things. So mm -hmm. surgery, to summarize, surgery is the best option and endoscopy is a palliative option, but with some good uh, curative uh, results. So surgeries can be complicated by recurrent stenosis, dehiscence, often death. Uh, Dr. Dutau, in his publication in Respiration last year, presented an intriguing alternative 
for patients with laryngotracheal stenosis, transcaudal stenting. Now, in this study, uh, was a retrospective review over 16 years from two centers in France. A total of 17 patients were included, 11 had tracheostomy at baseline, 8 patients received T-tubes, and 9 endoluminal stents. Now, these stents were truly transcaudal stents, with the proximal end of the stent extending above the vocal cords. Now, Dr. Dutau, I would have never thought of considering transcaudal stent placement. I came across a couple of studies, predominantly in the pediatric literature, where authors have used laryngotracheal prosthesis for patients with laryngotracheal stenosis. Now, is this what encouraged your group to try out this technique in adults? Well, not really, not really, but I, I totally agree with you. Uh, I would say that uh, six, seven, I don't remember, maybe eight years ago, if someone would have told me that this stand placement between the vocal cords was possible, I would never believe it. Never, never. Uh, my first thought uh, would, would, would have been, well, they would have pain, they would have aspiration. Uh, I mean, the tolerance would be awful. But, but the thing is that I saw it. I saw it mm-hmm. because one of the patients in, in, the, in, the, in the publication, one of uh, young lady, she came to Paris for uh, tracheal replacement with aorta, but unfortunately the, anast- the proximal anastomosis of, with, of, of the aortic graft was very close to the vocal cords. And uh, you know, maybe that when you do aortic replacement, you need a temporary stand before the aorta uh, gets hard. And the stand created a, a, a glottical uh, stenosis. And, and uh, an ENT surgeon, ENT surgeon from Strasbourg, Strasbourg is a, is a town in the east of France, northeast mm-hmm. of France, who is, in fact, uh, I mean, one of the pioneers of the technique in, in France, uh, did in this case, in this lady, uh, stand, uh, transcordal stent placement. And I, then the, the lady came back to, to Marseille. And I saw it. I saw the stent in between the vocal cords, and I saw that the tolerance was good. I mean, uh, she had no pain, she had no aspiration. Mm-hmm. Only thing, of course, but we, we will come back to that, is that she had a whispering voice. Mm-hmm. That's normal when you have a, uh, a stent between the vocal cords. So, so, so it's not because yeah. of pediatric study, but it's because I saw it. And then, <laughs> then I started to discuss with this ENT surgeon, which his name is Christian, De, Christian Debris, mm-hmm. uh, D-E-B-R-Y. And it was very interesting, very interesting because I realized that he was doing that for years. And this is why, why our study is a 16 years uh, retrospective study, because uh-huh. it started it started first, and, and 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 in our center we did we did it since so I would say six years only, only six years. So well, it's mainly because I saw it and and I realized it was possible. So what technique do you use to place these stents? I mean, uh, exactly the same technique as the one I use for. Uh, subglottic or tracheal or bronchial bronchial stent placement. That means rigid bronchoscopy. So I use a rigid bronchoscope. It's, I mean, the stenosis. Um, in fact, in our in our center, the patient we have treated are a little bit different than, than the one we we have been treated in in Strasbourg. In Strasbourg, it's mainly uh, post-traumatic uh, mm-hmm. wounds, wounds, injuries. Of uh, larynx and and and, sub, and and subglottic area. Why in our group it was more uh, post-radic uh, uh, ENT cancer, you know, uh, ENT lesions of the, of the larynx. 
It was also uh, idiopathic tracheostenosis. It was also uh, post-intubation tracheostenosis. So it's a little bit different because our stenosis are, have in common all, all in common the fact that they were with a fibrotic, fibrotic. So mm -hmm. in my experience, when I have a fibrotic stenosis, I I do a mechanical dilation with increasing diameter tubes, rigid tubes, and then and then once I have achieved the optimal dilation with a maximum diameter tube, then I place a silicon stent, like I do with any mm -hmm. uh, any any location in the in the in the central airways. So just to clarify, you are extubating the patient when you're deploying the stent that extends above the vocal cords. Most of the patients when Tracheotomized, if you remember the study, so yes. they were ventilated, ventilated through the tracheostomy, uh -huh. and then uh, so dilation was achieved when when the patient was ventilated through the tracheostomy, and of course when I arrived at the trache uh, ostium of tracheostomy, then the cannula is removed and the patient is after ventilated on the tube itself. Okay, the tube. Got it. Got it. All right, so some of your patients received straight stents while some got hourglass stents. Uh, what factors do you decide uh, when you choose between one of these two? So, uh, in fact, hourglass stents were mainly placed in Strasbourg, uh, in, uh, so in the other center. Mm -hmm. in, our, in, our, in our center, we mainly place... In fact, we, have, we had, because it was new for me, and, and I wanted to have a, a kind of stepwise approach, uh, because I, I had still have doubt at the beginning. So, as I told you, almost all my patients were tracheostomized. Mm -hmm. So, the first stent I, I placed in this stepwise approach was a T-tube. T-tube, so that means that I kept the tracheostomy, mm -hmm. in the external branch of the T-tube, and I was thinking that in case of respiratory problem, distress, I could pull on the T-tube, remove it, uh, I mean, easily, because you have the external branch, so you, you grab it, you pull it firmly, and then you remove the stent, and replace a, a cannula of tracheostomy. So that was my stepwise approach. So almost all my patients, I started with a T-tube, and after one month, if tolerance was okay, then uh, I moved to the straight, straight silicon stent, and and uh, with an enclosure of the uh, tracheostomy. Mm -hmm. So it happened in almost all patients except one uh, the lady I was talking about, uh, the first one who I saw. Uh, unfortunately, she's still having uh, a T tube uh, because uh, the, the, there is a recurrence of stenosis every time when we remove the, the stent. So stepwise okay. approach, T tube, and then straight tube. And, okay. And after a while, stand removal and and see if recurrence. Got it. Got it. So next, let's discuss the complications. So minor complications were frequent. Aspiration occurred in five out of seventeen patients. Now, Doctor Dutau, why do you think that there was no clinically significant aspiration events in seventy percent of the patients? Did these findings surprise you? Well, it was surprising, as I told you. I mean, before the. Uh, just the idea of placing a stent in the vocal cord. But, but Dr. Dobry explained me why uh, you have so little aspiration. In fact, the proximal uh, edge of the stent has to be just at the level of the arytenoid cartilage, just at the level. That means that the epiglottis is working. I mean, it can close uh, when you swallow. The epiglottis uh, is free to close the proximal end of the stent. 
because you, you don't disturb it if with extreme with too much length between the vocal cords. So very at at the level of alternoid, and then epiglottis can close. So thanks to this uh, functional uh, epiglottis, that mm -hmm. that explains that uh, patient have so little aspiration. Mm, that's very interesting. Um, so. Uh, in addition to that, all your patients, as you alluded to, had some dysphonia. They could speak uh, at the sound intensity of a whisper. Mm -hmm. However, three patients, uh, this was severe, and mm -hmm. they could not produce sufficient sound intensity to be understood while speaking. Uh, so this is sort of an expected consequence of the procedure, it seems. But um, was this difficult to recruit patients, counseling them about dysphonia? Because it would seem to be a fair trade-off as opposed to a permanent tracheostomy. Yeah, so uh, I agree with you. For me, to, I consider it, it as more as a consequence of that complication. Uh, and if you recall what I told you about the population I, I have treated my, in our, my center, almost all of them had uh, tracheostomy. So they were already, they already had some difficulties to produce sounds, even voice. And, I, and, and for me, the most... Um, uh, the case that illustrates better the, the technique is one lady who came first in my consult. She has been treated. She had been treated uh, previously for ENT, uh, laryngeal cancer, only with radiation, and the radiation created um, laryngotracheal stenosis, but complete, complete. So uh, no air could pass between the vocal cords. Of course, she was tracheotomized. Of course, and she came to me. Uh, well, to see if I can do something for her, uh, and she was, for instance, wanted she wanted to talk, and uh, so I, I explained him uh, her the technique, and so I, for her in this case, I had to recanalize uh, laryng the laryng glottic areas, subglottic area with a laser, then dilated it, and then you know uh, after dilation stent placement. So in in, in her case. She had she could not even produce one sound, and after stand placement, even through the vocal cord, she was whispering. So only for her, it was a kind of miracle. So she mm -hmm. could breathe uh, normally and with with some um, some some sound. And uh, no, but you know you know French are generally not politically politically correct people, and so <laughs> uh, and so I have to say that almost all the Patient I have treated or ladies. Okay. And, and so I, 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 well, it's not true, but the husbands were very happy because of the whispering voice of their wife. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, uh, coming back to your point of uh, functional epiglottis, uh, yeah. were these patients able to generate a good cough? Yes, 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 yes. They were. Okay. Right. Okay. So. Yeah. So just for the listeners, in addition, granulation tissue occurred in three people, migration in two, and one patient had laryngeal discomfort, which resolved with stent removal. Mm. So next, uh, we can discuss the outcomes. After a mean duration of 18 months, 11 patients had their stents removed without the need to reinsert them after a follow-up of at least one year. Mm. Amongst 11 patients with a tracheostomy at baseline, nine had their tracheostomy orifices closed and only one patient remained with a silicon stent. Uh, now, did the patients who had their stents removed have any residual aspiration or dysphonia? 
No, no, no. So really, truly uh, cured. And um, I mean, I know the limitation you, you you just listed the limitation of of, of a retrospective study, but you see, we are we are close to sixty five percent of uh, success, which is mm-hmm. which is not not that bad, and and very consistent with the fact that it's very close to the results we have for stent placement in subgothic tracker stenosis, almost the same result in bronchial stenosis, like in uh, anastomotic strictures after lung transplantation. It's almost it, good results are roughly around 70%. So, I mean, it's um, it's not too bad. It's not too mm-hmm. bad. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, of course, if, if, and even for the patient who are not weaned from cannula, not weaned from... Uh, Stand. I mean, the quality of life is not that bad above all when you compare uh, to what it was before. Perfect, perfect. And then, um, what conclusions can you draw from these results? Well, first of all, uh, it was also for me a surprise, you know, at, at the beginning. So I explained that. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, Indication of very limited, of course, very limited. We, we, for instance, since one year, we haven't placed one in the true vocal cords uh, because we haven't found a good indication. Uh, and for instance, you know, in idiopathic tracheal stenosis, we we favor uh, repeated dilation rather than stent placement. Um, and and our colleagues, ENT colleagues, they are aware now that we are doing that, so they know that. If they have a patient with uh, laryngeal stenosis, post-radic, post-cancer, we can do it. But, but um, it's very rare. It's very rare. Imagine that we have uh, only, how, how do you say, we have uh, 17 patients over 16 years. So mm-hmm. roughly, it's one case per year. One case per year. Uh, you, I mean, I think that people have to be aware that it is possible. Clearly, they have to be aware. It, it, it will probably solve situation of my, some of my colleagues who are not aware of that, and and we and we and we start to think that it's possible, and, and maybe we'll do it. Uh, I think that we will probably improve the 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 stance. You know that we are, we enter the era of three D printed three D printed stance, and clearly, I think the this area, the Rango tracker. Uh, is amenable to this kind of uh, 3D printed stent because you know anatomy is uh, clearly uh, special in this area. Uh, so indication are rare, and and I think the evolution will be to 3D printed 3D printed stents. Yeah, absolutely. Some very very important points. Uh, I mean, this has been a fantastic discussion, Doctor Dutu. Uh, any uh, closing thoughts? Uh, I mean, no, not really. <laughs> Thank you very much. No, I, I hope that this uh, discussion will be uh, useful for, 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 for people. And uh, if I do remember, it's for AABIP. Uh, yes. Okay. So yes. to the American guys, I just want to remind you that um, America is, uh, is important, but uh, I mean, also all over the world, we have... Uh, very good IP guys in Europe. We welcome you to our meetings too, and uh, it's uh, it's always important to open open your eyes to to the world and uh, 
and that's my final message. <laughs> <laughs> this was definitely a very, very intriguing and interesting topic of discussion. And we definitely, of course, look for more data on the same. But Dr. Dutu, I would really like to thank you for your time today and the pearls of wisdom that you have shared with us all. Thank you very much, Udit. With that, we conclude an exciting episode here on the AABIP podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed hosting it. Do also check out our website, theippodcast.com, and please do provide us with feedback and suggestions on what topic and which expert you want to hear next. Until next time, take care.